Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. We stream live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays at docwashburnshow.com. Minutes after each live stream is completed, the Doc Washburn Show podcast is available for download at all your favorite podcast platforms. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. This is the 72nd episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Friday, January 21st, 2022. Coming up, today you will hear news. You're not hearing anywhere else about January 6th, about the Texas hostage-taking at the Jewish synagogue in the Dallas-Fort Worth area last weekend. And about the vaccine. That's coming up. But first, yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media. Simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious. The last U.S. presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't allow me to say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. All right, now, (laughs) wow, wow, already we have a comment Already we have a comment on uh, <clears throat> on the Podbean app. Somebody saying, stop it. You stop that right now. You are not allowed to be sick, and neither is your fam in Jesus' name. All right, well, we appreciate your prayers. We appreciate your prayers. The Lord sends the rain on the, on the just and the unjust. So we, uh, we certainly appreciate your prayers. All right, now... Um, I need to get to, first of all, one of the reports about last Saturday's hostage taking, which the media decided once they realized this guy was a jihadist, that's a 24-hour story, just a local news story. Nothing to see here, folks. Move along. But the Washington Free Beacon is not playing along. Chuck Ross this morning has the article, Islamist groups waged misinformation campaign to free terrorist Afia Siddiqui in months before Texas hostage, in months before Texas synagogue attack. All right? So here's what they're saying. Islamist groups in the U.S. and abroad waged a months-long propaganda campaign to free convicted terrorist Afia Siddiqui, from a Texas prison before a British national attacked a nearby synagogue in her name last weekend. The Council on American-Islamic Relations, their acronym is CARE, C-A-I-R, revived a years-long misinformation campaign in August, including a September protest outside the Carswell Texas federal prison where Siddiqui is serving an 86-year prison sentence on charges that she tried to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan in 2008. Now, like many of Siddiqui's allies, CARE has, without any evidence, 
disputed allegations of her ties to terrorism or that she shot at American personnel in the course of her capture. In lieu of evidence, the groups offered claims from Siddiqui herself, even as her own defense counsel pointed to questions of her competency to explain her anti-Semitic outbursts at trial. The groups have also put forth a barrage of conspiracy theories about the American government. Thomas Jocelyn, a scholar at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies who has tracked al-Qaeda's network, says she has been heavily mythologized and turned into a martyr, but there's plenty of evidence she's nothing of the sort. It raises questions about why these groups are hell-bent on turning her into one. CARE began posting about Siddiqui on its social media accounts in August after years of relative silence about her case. In November 2021, the group organized a visit to Capitol Hill to lobby members of Congress to free Siddiqui. The group claims that Siddiqui had been brutally attacked by a fellow inmate on July 30, 2021 and held in solitary confinement. CARE's protest outside the Carswell prison in September coincided with a global online campaign to support her cause. The Twitter hashtag FreeSisterAfia trended on Twitter on the same day as the event. The online campaign was supported by Anjum Chowdhury, a British cleric notorious for his outspoken defense of ISIS. Chowdhury said on his blog in September 13, 2021, that Siddiqui had been attacked in prison and should be freed by force or ransom. It is unclear if Malik Faisal Akram, the hostage taker from last weekend, was aware of Chowdhury or Care's remarks about Siddiqui. A review of public statements about the alleged jailhouse attack on Siddiqui shows Care has inflated the initial allegation. Zahid Hafiz Chowdhury, a spokesman for Pakistan's foreign office, said soon after the alleged attack that Siddiqui had sustained minor injuries during an altercation with a fellow inmate, but she was doing fine. You know, I'm just wondering, since Siddiqui is an Islamic jihadist doing 86 years for trying to murder Americans, if it's within the realm of possibility that she may have actually initiated whatever altercation happened to the prison herself. I mean, call me crazy. But I just thought I'd throw that out there. Anyway, Care claimed Siddiqui was the victim of a brutal attack and was placed in solitary confinement for 60 days. Faizan Syed, the head of Care's Dallas-Fort Worth office, claimed during Care's protests at Carsville Prison on September 19, 2021, that Siddiqui had been held in solitary confinement for 48 days. In an interview a month earlier, Syed said Siddiqui had been released from solitary confinement and had been in contact with her attorney. Federal Bureau of Prisons declined to respond to questions about the alleged incident, citing privacy concerns for prisoners. The press office at Carswell did not respond to questions. CARE also spread oft-cited but unfounded claims about Siddiqui during her press conference on Saturday to denounce Akram's synagogue attack. Syed reiterated calls for Siddiqui's release from Carcel Prison. Siddiqui's attorney, Marwa El Biali, 
asserted Siddiqui was the victim of CIA torture at a black site before her 2008 arrest. Now, y'all, before you get all bent out of shape here, jihadists and their attorneys do sometimes lie. I just want to put that out there. Chuck Ross, Washington Free Beacon continues, there is no evidence to support Siddiqui's backers' claim she was held at a secret CIA prison for five years before her arrest. Judge Richard Berman, who presided over Siddiqui's case, said during trial that there was no evidence that Siddiqui was held by the CIA or other U.S. agencies. Siddiqui was convicted in 2010, years after the FBI placed the MIT-educated neuroscientist on its most wanted list over her alleged ties to al-Qaeda. Siddiqui married the nephew of 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Oh, so keep it all in the family. Okay. And opened a post office box in the United States for another al-Qaeda operative. She was also arrested in Afghanistan with papers describing a mass casualty event to be carried out in the United States. So this Akram guy last Saturday stormed Congregation Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas, demanding Siddiqui's release. He held the rabbi and three congregants hostage and was killed after an 11-hour standoff. Akram has not been linked to CARE thus far. CARE did not respond to requests for comment. What a shock that is. Now, coming up, we hope to also tell you how the hostages got out because that's a whole different ball game that I don't think I've heard reported in the mainstream media anywhere. So that's coming up also. All right, a statement from uh, former President Trump just came out a few minutes ago. He says, so let me get this straight. I'm being investigated in Georgia for asking an attorney general with many lawyers and others knowingly on the phone to look for corruption which definitely took place in the Georgia presidential election. But the people who committed the crime are in no way, shape, or form under investigation and are instead being protected. The people looking for the crime are being hounded, and the people who committed the crime are being protected. This is not the American way. Well, amen. I mean, when he's right, he's right, and he's right. So, just thought I would... uh, thought I would throw that one out there. I don't know. Have you seen the the viral video of New York police officers arresting people who tried to enter a museum without uh, vaccine passports, including arresting a nine-year-old girl? Now, the great Ariel Davidson over the Claremont Institute and the Hoover Institute points out People are being pushed in front of subways in New York City and killed, but they got the cops arresting nine-year-old girls for trying to enter a a museum without uh, vaccine papers. Got that? Anyway, the great uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn has a new article out on his website, generalflynn.com. In the next 24 hours, massive corruption will be exposed. Looks like this came out yesterday, so we're looking forward to seeing whatever it is. The article says the family of former National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn has issued a fiery statement in response to a report that the University of Rhode Island's new president has recommended the institution revoke an honorary degree conferred upon the former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2014 
calling the move corrupt. Given that University of Rhode Island President Mark Parlinge has held his position only since August, he apparently believes that revoking this honorary degree and one conferred upon former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani in 2003 are top priorities for the school. The committee overseeing URI's honorary degrees voted on December 10th to revoke both degrees, quote, based on their findings that General Flynn and Mayor Giuliani no longer represent the highest level of our values and standards that were evident when we first bestowed the degree, unquote, according to a letter to the school's board of trustees cited by the Providence Rhode Island Journal. So we'll see. We'll see what comes out here. General Flynn's website saying in the next 24 hours, massive corruption will be exposed. By the way, by the way, General Flynn um, endorsed a great American, a fellow named Colonel Conrad Reynolds. Colonel Conrad Reynolds, who is uh, challenging one of the worst rhino, one of the worst rhino U.S. representatives in the U.S. House, uh, French Hill, from the 2nd District of Arkansas. So if you want to find out more about that, go to Conrad Reynolds' website. It's called electconrad.com. All right. Now, uh, the great Julie Kelly was scheduled to testify at 10 Eastern this morning in front of the House Judiciary Committee. And uh, if we can get any video from that uh, before before the show is over today, we certainly uh, plan to share it with you. Julie Kelly, of course, uh, writes over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. She, she was scheduled to testify in front of the um, House Judiciary Committee this morning at 10 Eastern, I'm just uh, searching the words Julie Kelly on YouTube to see if we have anything. Very odd. What we might have to do is just search House Judiciary Committee because I did see on Twitter that uh, apparently uh, Congressman Andy Biggs, Republican from, uh, where's he from, Arizona, apparently was on fire. Uh, okay, it says they're live right now. It says they're live right now, but that's not Julie Kelly. I don't know who that is. So we'll uh, we'll kind of try to keep track of that. I bet we could find Andy Biggs. Let me see what Andy Biggs said. Let me see what Andy Biggs said. And I apologize that we're doing a show prep as the show unfolds, but you got to keep up on the breaking news. You know, you can't. You 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 got to keep going. You can't sleep on this stuff. All right, nothing yet, nothing yet. We'll uh, we'll check back on that. We'll check back on that. Now, speaking of Julie Kelly, um, she does have a new article out: the pathetic and political sedition case against the Oath Keepers over in American Greatness. So I got to share that one with you. She says facing intensifying criticism from Democrat lawmakers, journalists, and even some federal judges for not seeking harsher punishment against January six protesters. Attorney General Merrick Garland finally produced charges to appease his detractors. Last week, more than a year after the so-called insurrection, Garland 
charged 11 members of the Oath, Keeper, of the Oath Keepers with seditious conspiracy. The star of the new indictment, handed down by a grand jury on January 12th, is Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the alleged militia group. His co-defendants were charged with several other offenses months ago. Rhodes, described only as Person 1, for nearly a year in numerous criminal indictments related to his organization, has been a free man since January 6, 2021, raising plausible suspicions that he may have been a government informant at the time. After all, the FBI has a long-standing pattern of infiltrating French groups such as the Oath Keepers and moving them to commit indictable crimes. Under the definition of seditious conspiracy, prosecutors allege Stuart Rhodes and his co-defendants conspired to halt what they call the lawful transfer of presidential power by force including not just the Electoral College certification, but the inauguration, which was 14 days away. The flagrantly political move will give the Justice Department a temporary reprieve from its loud chorus of critics on the left. January 6th propagandists boast that the new charges finally offer some support to the heretofore baseless claim that the events of that day amounted to an insurrection. Beryl Howell, the chief judge of the D.C. court, handling every January 6th case, recently expressed her dismay at the petty offenses sought by prosecutors. She undoubtedly will be thrilled with this news. Corporate media also commend this apparently sweeping indictment. Former FBI official and MSNBC contributor Frank Figliuzzi told Nicole Wallace after the indictment was announced, quote, it's hard to underemphasize how significant this is, unquote. He probably meant it's hard to overemphasize. Because if it's hard to underemphasize, that's mean, that means it's nothing. But then, then again, he was a top FBI official, so, you know, we all make mistakes. CNN legal analyst Asha Rankapa concluded that Quote, even if Trump wasn't directly involved in their plan, his exhortation to his lunatic mob to head to the Capitol definitely helped them execute their operation, unquote. Oh, yeah. Calling for peaceful protest. Respectful, peaceful protest. Yeah, that's uh, First Amendment, of course. Uh, This uh, DOJ, Biden's DOJ, doesn't like First Amendment. Julie Kelly says, but the real question is whether the government can make the charges stick. She says, as my book, January 6th, how Democrats used the Capitol protest to launch a war on terror against political right details, the case against the Oath Keepers is weak. Out of the 20 people tied to the Oath Keepers, three have accepted plea deals. Only one is accused of assaulting or impeding a police officer. No Oath Keeper is charged with carrying or using a weapon. The only property charge is aiding and abetting the destruction of government property. None are charged with directly inflicting any damage. So, what did these so-called seditious conspirators do? Well, for weeks, Stuart Rhodes led several group chats on an encrypted app to make plans to travel to Washington, D.C. Defendants discussed the deployment of what they called quick reaction forces to the Capitol if necessary. 
Some allegedly brought guns but left them at hotels in Virginia rather than violate Washington, D.C.'s strict gun control laws. Well, I guess they're not criminals then because criminals don't follow Washington, D.C.'s strict gun control laws. Um, I digress. A lot of the chatter was harmless. In one exchange, a few, dis- a few defendants discussed whether to wear jeans or khakis. Stuart Rhodes' communications were by far the most inflammatory on November 5th. 2020 in a signal group that he initiated. Stuart Rhodes warned of a civil war and encouraged the participants to prepare mind, body, spirit. In a December 2020 interview, Stuart Rhodes declared, quote, we will have to do a bloody, massive, bloody revolution against them, unquote, if Biden assumed the presidency. At 1.30 p.m. on January 6th, Stuart Rhodes predicted the day would lead to, quote, our Lexington, unquote, apparently referring to the Revolutionary War of centuries ago. But despite all the bluster and threats, the Oath Keepers committed no violent crimes on January 6th. Two separate groups of Oath Keepers entered the building in a slack formation, no, that should be stack formation, used in the military. Nearly all of the defendants are veterans. None broke windows or tore down barriers Again, inside. Dressed in military garb, the Oath Keepers walked around the rotunda. According to prosecutors, the first group joined others in pushing against a line of police in an attempt to access the Senate chambers. After cops sprayed the first group with a chemical irritant, the group retreated and left. That attempt to, quote, overturn democracy, unquote, lasted less than 25 minutes. You know, one of the things, one of the things I've been wondering about all the liberals claiming that people at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th were trying to uh, overturn democracy, overturn the government by being in one particular building at one particular time, was what would signify, if they were indeed trying to overthrow the government, what would signify um, them succeeding in their mission to overturn the government? Um, Capturing the flag, would that be it? Okay, we captured the flag, so we're in charge now. Because I, I don't, forgive me, but I, I don't think it's quite that simple to overturn uh, the government of what used to be the most powerful country in the world. Just, just a thought, just a thought. I thought I'd throw that out there. About a half hour later, the second group, referred to as Stack 2 by prosecutors, went inside the Capitol. Two defendants confronted police officers, and one screamed, this is my effing building. See, I'm not going to actually say the word. Uh, that failed coup lasted less than five minutes before Stack 2 exited the building. Now, three of the men, including Stuart Rhodes, never even went inside. One man, Edward Vallejo, stayed behind in a Virginia hotel to manage what is described by the defendants as a quick reaction force to transport firearms and ammunition if needed. There's speculation this was intended to respond to an attempted attack by Antifa or Black Lives Matter activists that day not to seize the Capitol. The quick reaction force never materialized and guns were never illegally brought into Washington, Washington, D.C. So not exactly a Bunker Hill moment. So for a few weeks of boasting on signal private chats and for LARPing on January 6th, these Americans are now Branded seditionists. Man, I keep on forgetting what that stands for, this uh, this LARP thing. 
I keep on forgetting what it stands for. So, of course, I got to go to UrbanDictionary.com and type in LARP. Live action role play. Oh, they're pretending like they're doing video games. Okay. All right, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Um, so going back to this, going back to Julie Kelly's new article, American Greatness. So for a few weeks of boasting on Signal private chats and for LARPing on January 6th, these Americans are now branded seditionists. In a motion seeking Vallejo's imprisonment until his trial, Biden's Justice Department claimed the Arizona man had participated, quote, in a plot to oppose by force the execution of the laws governing the transfer of presidential power in the United States, unquote. Even if true, which it isn't, there's no law that specifically criminalizes an attempt to interfere in the transfer of power. To the contrary, Americans gather every four years in the nation's capital, sometimes violently, such as in 2017, Trump's inauguration, to protest and, if possible, halt the inauguration of a president for whom they did not vote. Charging these men with seditious conspiracy is a new low for a vengeful attorney general and a Justice Department that has just opened a domestic terror unit to expand its prosecutorial and surveillance grip over Democrats' political foes. The charges are not only opportunistic but cynical as well. As the government well knows, there is less than zero chance the sedition charge will see the light of day in a courtroom. The last time the Justice Department prosecuted anyone for the seditious conspiracy was 12 years ago, and the charges were tossed by a federal judge. Much bigger question is why, if Stuart Rhodes is such a threat to the nation, did the Justice Department wait over a year to arrest him when nearly two dozen other Oath Keepers already had been charged for a conspiracy he orchestrated? According to the indictment, Stuart Rhodes purchased tens of thousands of dollars worth of firearms, ammunition, and rifle scopes before and after January 6th, making him by far the greatest threat of all the Oath Keepers. It's unlikely investigators just recently discovered these purchases. So why was Stuart Rhodes a free man for the past 12 months, charged seemingly in response to aggressive questioning in Congress that threatened to upend the liberal insurrection narrative? Something doesn't add up. It is still likely Stuart Rhodes worked in some capacity, or, pardon me, is it still likely Stuart Rhodes worked in some capacity as an informant? Yes. Is the government announcing these bombshell charges now to deflect mounting suspicions that the FBI and other agencies used numerous informants and agents to instigate violence on January 6th? Yes. Will these new charges succeed in delaying the first trial in the Oath Keepers case set for April? Yes. What they will not do is serve to establish in court that anything like an insurrection took place on January 6th. Instead, step by step, this carefully crafted narrative will crumble, eventually taking with it the last shreds of credibility for the Democrats, the Justice Department, including the FBI, and the liberal press. That is the great Julie Kelly article entitled The Pathetic and Political Sedition Case Against the Oath Keepers. And um, when we can, when it becomes available, 
we will uh, certainly go to any audio that becomes available of Julie Kelly testifying before the House Judiciary Committee. Now, coming up, I have to share with you some more news that I don't think you're getting anywhere else. And this is um, Glenn Greenwald's new column, Congress's January 6th committee claims absolute power as it investigates citizens with no judicial limits. Now, remember, remember, there were Republicans that voted for the January 6th committee also. One of them, for my listeners in central Arkansas, is your U.S. representative, your rhino, who we hope to replace in the Republican primary on May 24th, French Hill. So that's coming up momentarily. In the meantime, if you tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may be having a hard time finding what you're looking for anywhere close to where you live. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That is where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they will drive it to you no matter where you are in the continental United States of America. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they have added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options that you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, including the freedom to buy the vehicle of your choice the way you want to online, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live in the continental United States, RedRiverYourWay.com, you will be glad you did. And I'll just say this. um, We spoke to the owner of the Red River Group, Mitch Ward, before we ever agreed to do live endorsements for them. And these guys are conservative America first kind of folks. And we are proud to to be associated with him. All right, let me uh, let me go to Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald over at Substack. It's greenwald.substack.com. And uh, Glenn Greenwald is, uh, he is a very unusual fellow. He is politically liberal as most American journalists are, and yet... He tends to follow the story wherever it goes. He uh, used to write for the UK Guardian, The Intercept. But he tends to follow the story wherever it goes, even if liberals don't come out looking too good. Okay? 
just so you know. Just so you know. The article is entitled, Congress's January 6th Committee Claims Absolute Powers and Investigates Citizens with No Judicial Limits. Subtitle, The Committee Plotted with J.P. Morgan and its lawyer, former Obama Attorney General Loretta Lynch, to obtain a citizen's financial records with no possibility of judicial review. Now, there's no way this is legal. But that's just the title and the subtitle. Let's, let's dig into it. He says, in its ongoing attempt to investigate and gather information about private U.S. citizens, the Congressional January 6th Committee is claiming virtually absolute powers that not even the FBI or other law enforcement agencies enjoy. Indeed, lawyers for the committee have been explicitly arguing that nothing proscribes or limits their authority to obtain data regarding whichever citizens they target, and even more radically, that the checks imposed on the FBI, such as the requirement to obtain judicial authorization for secret subpoenas, do not apply to this committee. Greenwald says, as we have previously reported, and as civil liberties groups have warned, there are serious constitutional doubts about the existence of the committee itself. Under the Constitution and McCarthy-era Supreme Court cases interpreting it, the power to investigate crimes lies with the executive branch, supervised by the judiciary and not with Congress. Congress does have the power to conduct investigations, but that power is limited to two narrow categories. One, when doing so is designed to assist in its lawmaking duties, such as directing executives of oil companies to testify when considering new environmental laws, and two, in order to exert oversight over the executive branch. What Congress is barred from doing, as two McCarthy-era Supreme Court cases ruled, is exactly what the January 6th Committee is now doing conducting a separate parallel criminal investigation in order to uncover political crimes committed by private citizens. Such powers are dangerous precisely because Congress's investigative powers are not subject to the same safeguards as the FBI and other law enforcement agencies. And just as was true of the 1950s House Un-American Activities Committee that prompted three Supreme Court rulings, pardon me, that prompted those Supreme Court rulings the January 6th Committee is not confining its invasive investigative activities to executive branch officials or even citizens who engaged in violence or other illegality on January 6th, but instead is investigating anyone and everyone who exercised their constitutional rights to express views about and organize protests over their belief that the 2020 presidential election contained fraud. Indeed, the committee's initial targets appear to be taken from the list of those who applied for protest permits in Washington, a perfectly legal, indeed constitutionally protected act. Hmm. This abuse of power is not merely abstract. The Congressional January 6th Committee has been secretly obtaining private information about American citizens en masse, telephone records, email logs, Internet and browsing history, and banking transactions, and it has done so without any limitations or safeguards no judicial oversight, no need for warrants, no legal limitations of any kind. Indeed, the committee has been purposely attempting to prevent citizens who are the targets of their investigative orders 
to have any opportunity to contest the legality of this behavior in court. As we reported in October, the committee sent dozens, if not hundreds, of subpoenas to telecom companies demanding a wide range of email and other Internet records and without any legal basis requested that those companies not only turn over those documents but refrain from notifying their own customers of the request. If the companies were unwilling to comply with this so-called request, then the committee requested that they either contact the committee directly or just disregard the request. In other words, the last thing they wanted was to enable one of their targets to learn that they were being investigated because that would enable them to seek a judicial ruling about the legality of the committee's actions. But now the committee is escalating its aggressive investigative actions. They have begun sending subpoenas to private banks, demanding the banking records of private citizens, doing so much, and doing so such that either the person never finds out or finds out too late to obtain a judicial order about the legality of the committee's behavior. In one case, they targeted J.P. Morgan with these subpoenas while knowing that bank that while knowing that that bank is being represented by former Obama Attorney General Loretta Lynch, Lynch unsurprisingly then directed her client not to accommodate any requests from its own customers to ensure they can seek judicial review. On November twenty second, the January sixth committee served a subpoena on Taylor Butterwich, a former spokesman for the Trump campaign who never worked for the U.S. government. They requested a wide range of documents as well as his deposition testimony. On December 14th, Taylor Butterwich voluntarily complied by handing over a large amount of his personal records. And then on December 22nd, he flew to Washington at his own expense and submitted to questioning. There's no suggestion that Taylor Butterwich was engaged in, engaged in any violence or other illegal acts at the Capitol on January 6th. Their only interest in this private citizen is his connection to the Trump campaign and his stated view that he believed the 2020 election was marred by fraud. After he furnished the committee with those documents and then testified, Taylor Butterwich learned from others that the committee was issuing subpoenas directly to the banks used by other individuals for their personal accounts. He thus requested that his lawyer notify his own bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, that he would object to their cooperation with any subpoena without first providing notice to him so that he can have time to seek a legal ruling in court. Typically, citizens learn when law enforcement agencies such as the FBI serve subpoenas to third-party providers such as banks or Internet companies. That allows a crucial right to contest the legality of the action in court before the documents are supplied. But when such a subpoena is concealed from the person, it prevents them from obtaining judicial review. In general, citizens learn of FBI subpoenas, and the FBI, with rare exceptions, has the power to impose a gag order or otherwise prevent the person from learning about it, only if, the, only if they first persuade a court that such an extreme measure is warranted by arguing, for instance, that a terror suspect will flee or destroy evidence if they learn they're being investigated. That safeguard ensures that in most cases the citizen has the right to seek judicial protection from an illegal act by an investigative body. But the January 6th committee recognizes no right of any kind and no limits on its power on November 23rd, the day after it served a subpoena on Taylor Butterwich himself. It served a subpoena on Butterwich's bank, J.P. Morgan. The original date for the bank to produce the records was December 7th. 
But J.P. Morgan, again, advised by former Obama Attorney General Loretta Lynch as its legal counsel, bizarrely requested that the deadline be extended until December 24th, the day before Christmas, knowing that courts would be closed that day and the next. It was only on December 21st when Taylor Butterwich was in Washington for his testimony before the committee did J.P. Morgan send him notice at his home that it had received a subpoena and intended to produce the requested documents on December 24th, just three days later. As J.P. Morgan and Lynch knew what happened, Butterwich did not see the letter until he arrived home on the evening of December 22nd, less than 48 hours before the bank told him they were going to give up all of his financial records to the committee. Upon discovering that the committee had subpoenaed his bank, Taylor Butterwich's lawyers immediately advised J.P. Morgan they had legal objections to the subpoena and requested that given it was about to be Christmas Eve and the courts would be closed, the bank seek an extension from the committee to enable Butterwich to seek a judicial ruling. But J.P. Morgan Chase, advised by Loretta Lynch, refused and told him they intended to turn the documents over on Christmas regardless of whether that gave him time to request judicial intervention. The bank even refused to provide a copy of the subpoena they received from the committee, which Butterwich, to this very day, has not seen. Taylor Butterwich's lawyers did did everything possible to seek judicial intervention before J.P. Morgan gave all this financial documents to the committee, but the timing agreed to by the committee, Lynch and the bank, documents produced on Christmas Eve with notice to him arriving just a couple of days before when he's testifying in Washington, made it impossible by design. As a result, J.P. Morgan gave all of his banking records to the committee without even seeking an extension. Butterwich was therefore left with no alternative but to file an after-the-fact lawsuit against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the committee members seeking, seeking an emergency injunction against the committee's use of his banking records. In response, both the committee and J.P. Morgan argued that the entire question was moot given that they had already handed over the documents. In other words, lawyers for the committee and Loretta Lynch created a plot whereby J.P. Morgan would notify Butterwich of its intent to hand over the documents right before Christmas so as to purposely deny him time to seek a court ruling and then used the fact that he was too late in filing as a ground for arguing that the court should shut its doors to him and refuse to even give him a hearing. The court agreed that Butterwich's request for an emergency injunction was moot given that the bank already supplied the documents, but agreed to rule on the merits of the arguments about whether the subpoena was legal. The party's briefs on this question were submitted to an Obama-appointed federal judge, James Bosberg, in Washington. The oral argument on Butterwich's request to enjoin the use of his banking records by the committee was held earlier on Thursday, and Judge Bosberg quickly rejected Butterwich's objections to the subpoena. It will now be appealed to the Court of Appeals, but the issues presented by the committee's arguments are chilling. At the hearing, the committee's lawyers essentially repeated the same argument they advanced in their legal brief, namely that none of the legal safeguards imposed on the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to guard against abuse of power apply to the Congressional Committee 
which therefore enjoys virtually absolute power to do what it wants. That is not an exaggerated summary of the committee's argument. The primary law on which Butterwich is relying is the Right to Financial Privacy Act, RFPA, which prohibits any financial institution or officers, employees, or agent of the financial institution from providing to any government authority access to or copies of or the information contained in the financial records of any customer unless they have first complied with the requirements of that law. Among the key requirements is that a financial institution shall not release the financial records of a customer until the government authority seeking such records certifies in writing to the financial institution that it has complied with the applicable provisions of the chapter of this chapter, pardon me. As Butterwich's lawyers argued, the key to the law is that a person whose financial records are sought must receive notice of that attempt and be given sufficient time to challenge it in court. And here's the quote from Butterwich's lawyers. Both 12 U.S. Code 3405, Administrative Subpoena or Summons, and 3408, Formal Written Request, require that a copy of the subpoena or request have been served upon the customer or mailed to his last known address on or before the date on which the subpoena or summons was served on the financial institution, together with a formal statutory notice allowing 10 days from the date or service or 14 days from the date of mailing the required notice. Additional provisions of the RFPA establish the right of a financial institution Uh, the right of a financial institution customer to challenge a request for their financial records in an appropriate United States District Court and that proceedings involving such challenges should be completed or decided within seven calendar days of the filing of any government response. But the committee did not deny that it failed to meet these requirements. Obviously, they could not argue that, given that the plan they created with J.P. Morgan and its lawyer, former Obama Attorney General Loretta Lynch, was designed to ensure that Butterwich have no time to obtain a judicial ruling before his bank records were handed over. Instead, the committee's response is they do not have to comply with this law. Quote, The act restricts only agencies and departments of the United States, and the select committee is neither. That is what the uh, committee's lawyer contended. In fact, they explicitly argued that these safeguards were meant to be imposed only on the FBI and other law enforcement agencies, but were intended to exempt Congress, even when, as here, they are clearly engaged in investigating private citizens for potential crimes. The committee's lawyers wrote in an assertion of power breathtaking in its scope and limitlessness, quote, multiple provisions of the statute underscore that Congress intended government authority to mean an executive branch agency or department, unquote. Now, all of the other committee's arguments are similarly designed to bestow on itself absolute and unlimited power in how it investigates private citizens and to insist that the judiciary judiciary is without power to impose limits on it. The committee insists, for instance, that it can investigate anyone it wants 
in connection with January 6th, even if its motive is not to enact new laws, and even if the documents it seeks, like Butowich's financial records, have no relationship to any proposed new laws. That is because it says, quote, Congressional committees are not required to identify a specific piece of legislation in advance of conducting an investigation of the pertinent facts. It is sufficient that a committee's investigation concerns a subject on which legislation could be bad, unquote. Now, such a principle, if accepted, would destroy any limits on Congress's ability to investigate citizens. Clearly, it was possible for the McCarthy-era congressional investigations to lead to new laws, even though, as the Supreme Court twice ruled when striking them down, that was clearly not its primary purpose. But Judge Boesberg nonetheless accepted the committee's argument on the ground that an appellate court had already ruled that the January 6th committee had a valid legislative purpose, and he was therefore bound by that decision. The committee's other arguments are even more extreme, namely that the Constitution's speech or debate clause provides absolute immunity to members and committees when performing legislative acts, and that sovereign immunity prohibits litigation against Congress to which it has not consented, and no such consent has been. Wow. That would mean that the January 6th committee could literally do whatever it wanted to citizens, and no court would have the right even to review the legality or constitutionality of what it is doing, let alone put a stop to it. Wow. Greenwald continues what happened during the first war on terror and so many other events that were perceived as traumatic is instructive here. So many Americans were so horrified by the carnage of that day, September 11th, 2001, for years, and many did not care or want to hear about legal niceties, constitutional limits, or civil liberties regarding the government's actions. Anything the government did in the name of responding to or retaliating for 9-11 became inherently justified, and anyone who objected, no matter the principle cited, was deemed to be on the side of the terrorists. The same dynamic is prevailing here. There are serious constitutional limits on the ability of Congress to investigate private citizens. It is blatantly abusive to scheme with J.P. Morgan and its counsel, Loretta Lynch, to ensure that a citizen has no time to seek judicial relief regarding the committee's attempt to obtain mounds of his personal and financial records. And in general, the committee has been on a rampage targeting not only Trump officials or people who engage in criminal behavior of the Capitol on January 6th, but a wide group of citizens whose only crime appears to be their political beliefs and associations, exactly what the Supreme Court cited when striking down the excesses of Congress's McCarthy-era probes of citizens. But with the media overwhelmingly cheering anything done in the name of stopping the Trump movement and those who supported January 6th in any way, all of these civil liberties concerns and constitutional protections are run roughshod over in the name of safety. The latest arguments from the Congressional January 6th Committee amount to little more than an assertion of unfettered power for Adam Schiff, Liz Cheney, and the rest of the committee members to dig into the lives of anyone they want without limits. That is breathtaking. And that is Glenn Greenwald over at Substack, greenwald.substack.com. And the name of the article is Congress's January 6th Committee Claims Absolute Power 
as it investigates citizens with no judicial limits. Now, for my listeners in in central Arkansas, I just want to remind you, this Liz Cheney, whose January 6th committee is, uh, I believe, illegally subpoenaing financial records of people who have nothing to do with January 6th. Remember, for my listeners in central Arkansas, to this day, your representative in the U.S. House of Representatives, French Hill, insists that Liz Cheney is an outstanding conservative. So I would hope you would get the word out about that. I hope you get the word out that he does have a an actual America first conservative opponent in the Republican primary for the U.S. House of Representatives coming up in central Arkansas May 24th. His name is Conrad Reynolds. I would hope that you would pass that along because this is a, buddy, this is outrageous. This is absolutely outrageous. But they're used to getting away with it, aren't they? Like Pelosi back in 2009 when she said, We'll have to pass Obamacare to find out what's in it. And boy, do we find out. So let me ask you, are you like most Americans? Did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, make your health care more expensive? Does your, does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? If you answered yes to any of those questions, there's a website you need to go to called myfamilyhealthplan.com. When you click on MyFamilyHealthPlan.com, you see the big, bold letters, Affordable Plans. Save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays. So you click the button right below that that says Schedule Call Now. You book a free consultation with my buddy Art Wilborn, who will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. He also makes sure that, unlike a lot of those Obamacare plans, you're not forced to cover things like abortion, which would violate your deeply held religious beliefs. Again, the website is myfamilyhealthplan.com. Affordable plans, save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no copays. Click on the button that says schedule call now. Book a free consultation with my friend Art Wilborn, who will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Make sure that you get a plan that doesn't insult your morality. Save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com. You'll be so glad you did. And we appreciate Art Wilborn and myfamilyhealthplan.com for uh, supporting the Doc Washburn Show. Uh, They help make it possible for us to do what we do here. Okay, uh, U.S. Representative Chip Roy, conservative Republican out of Texas, and he links to a new ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. It was filed yesterday. And it's about the Second Amendment. And Chip Roy says, amazing, a three-judge panel upholds a Second Amendment claim. Author also writes a concurrence 
saying that because the Ninth Circuit standards are so results-oriented and always end up upholding firearms regulations, he will save them the trouble and do it himself, closing with, you're welcome. U.S. Representative Thomas Massey responds, U.S. Court of Appeals rules for Second Amendment. Says county violated the Constitution when shutting down gun stores and ranges due to COVID while allowing other businesses to remain open. A key sentence from this decision, quote, neither pandemic nor even war wipes away the Constitution, unquote. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So congratulations on that. All right. Oh, man, is there a lot to talk about? Yeah, we got we got more breaking news on on Hunter Biden. We got we got all kinds of stuff coming up here. Let's see. Do we have any uh, audio yet from Julie Kelly from her testimony today? Let me just let me just double check. Go over to her Twitter feed because she was uh, supposed to be testifying a couple of hours ago at the U.S. Judiciary Committee, U.S. House Judiciary Committee. Let me see. Let me see what we got here. Um. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, let's, let's get with it. Julie Kelly's full opening remarks about the horrible treatment of January 6th protesters at the House Judiciary Committee hearing. And, you know, I, uh, I don't think you're going to hear this anywhere else. Tucker might. Tucker might have her on tonight. Tucker might have some of the audio tonight. But that's about it. That's about it. All right, here she is. It's about five minutes long. I may cut in, I may not. Here we go. Ms. Kelly, uh, I am very pleased to recognize you for five minutes. Thank you, Chairwoman Lee and Ranking Member Biggs, Chairman Nadler, and Ranking Member Jordan. My name is Julie Kelly. I'm a senior contributor for American Greatness. For nearly a year, I have reported on the inhumane conditions at the D.C. Correctional Treatment Facility, which has been set aside to detain Americans charged in the Justice Department's capital breach probe. The Justice Department has sought pretrial detention for at least 100 January 6th protesters, and right now, more than 70 men are incarcerated at prisons across the country awaiting trial. At least 37 of those men are detained at the D.C. um, Correctional Treatment Facility. It's important to underscore to the committee and to those watching that these defendants have not been convicted of any crime. Most have no criminal record, and some do not even face violent charges related to their conduct on January 6th. Many detainees don't even have a court date yet. They have been denied bail because prosecutors insist they are a threat to society based on their participation in the Capitol protest, and federal judges on the D.C. District Court have consented to the Justice Department's demand to keep them behind bars while at the same time repeatedly delaying their trials into the middle and end of this year. The original rationale for keeping the January 6th protesters separated from other from the general population incarcerated at the D.C. Department of Corrections was to protect them from more violent criminals. It appears, however, that the D.C. jail for January 6th protesters is more of a political prison for Americans who protested Joe Biden's election. 
Detainees at the D.C. jail have reported numerous human rights and constitutional violations. A detainee I spoke with this week, an Army reservist charged with no violent crime, who nonetheless has been in prison since his arrest one year ago, confirmed the January 6th jail is under 22-hour lockdown due to COVID. It's nearly impossible for detainees to meet with their attorneys or access the discovery evidence against them. Defense lawyers have complained that it takes months for their clients to finally receive digital discovery materials because jail officials are withholding the evidence. The viewing of of video evidence, especially any clip produced from the roughly 14,000 hours of surveillance video captured by Capitol security cameras on January 6th that the Justice Department designated highly sensitive government material, is under strict rules. It's nearly impossible for detainees to watch any relevant video concealed under protective orders. The situation is so egregious that the D.C. District Court formed a committee to attempt to resolve the problem between defense attorneys and detainees accessing their evidence. Judge Randolph Moss blasted the D.C. jail for withholding evidence from an accused defendant. I can't allow someone to sit in prison for this long without access for material, Moss said back in July, calling the delays utterly unacceptable and not consistent with due process. But six months later, the situation does not appear to be improving. Living conditions are also utterly unacceptable. Detainees do not have access to religious service, a law library, or even personal hygiene services. Some they have not seen their families in nearly a year. Detainees have reported instances of racially and politically motivated verbal abuse. I am told the only newspaper distributed within the D.C. jail for January 6th defendants is a paper published by the Nation of Islam. Just this week, Marvin Bickman, a federal detention monitor for the U.S. Marshals Service, detailed several issues at the D.C. jail for January 6th detainees, such as the presence of mold and maintenance of CPAP machines. Bickman reported that detainees who refuse to get the COVID shot are denied shaving gear and haircuts. Detainees who refuse the vaccine cannot have personal visits. Regardless of vaccine status, January 6th detainees are only allowed out two hours a day for recreation time, which means they are spending now 22 hours alone in a freezing, what I'm told, freezing 8 by 10 cell. Again, these men have been convicted of no crime. Bickman again confirmed what I've heard from detainees, lawyers, and judges about lack of access to discovery material. Uh, detain- uh, Bickman wrote in his report, "We allowed uh, they are only allowed access to computers to review electronic discovery for only 14 days, and that is not, and there are not enough computers to go around. This is a clear violation of the Sixth Amendment, yet Bickman still concluded that the conditions in the D.C. jail for January 6th detainees are appropriate and consistent with federal prisoner standards. I see my time is up. Thank you so much for inviting me here today. I look forward to answering any questions. So, uh, you know, for those listening to this program who consider themselves to be people of faith, there's a scriptural admonition to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. You you, you do know that, right? And um, is it in the Psalms or the Proverbs where God says, that when you don't speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves, don't pretend you didn't know what was going on and don't think I didn't know what was going on. 
I'll have to look that up. I say all that to say this. Um, I still do this national talk show from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. There are four U.S. representatives from Arkansas. French Hill, Bruce Westerman, Rick Crawford, Steve Womack. And uh, they all profess to be people of faith. And none of them can be bothered to speak up on behalf of the official government torment of political prisoners being held by the federal government. Many of them veterans, many of them with no previous criminal track record, many of them charged with nonviolent misdemeanors. Many of them held without bail now for close to a year. Some of them without even a trial date yet. U.S. Representative French Hill, U.S. Representative Bruce Westerman, U.S. Representative Rick Crawford, U.S. Representative Steve Womack cannot be bothered to say a word on behalf of these men. Cannot be bothered to lift a finger to try to help these men. Nothing. Nothing. And the same thing for the United States Senators from Arkansas, Tom Cotton and John Bozeman. Not a peep. Not a peep. And yet they all claim to be people of faith. As does Dan Crenshaw, who represents the 2nd District of Texas, the Woodlands, Spring, Texas, a lot of suburbs of Houston to the north, northeast, and east of Houston, who was asked recently, I'll see if I can find the audio, the video, asked recently about the January 6th prisoners and said, well, you know, sorry, there's nothing I can do. Nothing I can do. For that matter, um, a lot of these guys are represented by uh, public defenders in Washington, D.C. who are liberals and hate them. I've wondered for a long time why Donald Trump hasn't set up a uh, legal defense fund for these people. Seems like he could find the money in his sofa cushions. but He's the one who told him to go to the Capitol peacefully. Of course, he had no idea that police were going to start attacking people. It seems like he could lift a finger to do something. But <sighs> So a uh, ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, U.S. Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona, asks Julie Kelly about January 6th defendants being held in solitary confinement for extended periods of time, and it went something like this. Um, Ms. Kelly, as I mentioned during my opening statement, some of the January 6th defendants have been held in solitary confinement for extended periods of time. Uh, what have you heard from detainees and their families or lawyers about how these men are coping with incarceration conditions that simply are not permissible in the United States? 
thank you, uh, Ranking Member Biggs, for that question and for inviting me. It's, as you can imagine, extremely difficult. Uh, they were in solitary confinement conditions for the first several months of their incarceration based on the pandemic. And then though that uh, those conditions were loosened up a little bit. Um, but now they are back to 22 hours in their cell uh, with only two hours out. That only gives them time to, that's all the time that they have, to try to communicate with their family, their lawyers, to see the discovery evidence against them. And as I said, some of these men are not charged with any violent crime. And at the same time that COVID is impacting what's happening at the D.C. jail uh, for January 6th defendants, their trial dates now are getting pushed uh, further out. For instance, I covered a hearing this week for Robert Geeswine. He has been incarcerated for over a year, uh, not convicted of any crime, of course. Um, but he is now, uh, he will be in COVID isolation for 30 days based on the testing that's going on there. Even if someone tests positive in his unit, he's in, he was in 14 days isolation, came out, someone else tested positive. He's now in another 14 days. His trial was set to begin the end of February. Judge Sullivan just moved it to the end of April now. So he will be in jail almost 18 months before he even has a chance to defend himself uh, in the court of law. Now, she mentions Judge Sullivan there. That's Judge Emmett Sullivan. Judge Emmett Sullivan was a guy that um, when William Barr and the Trump Justice Department said, you know, we've taken a look at uh, the charges against uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. We're going to drop those charges that never should have been brought in the first place. Judge Sullivan was the guy who dragged the process on for months saying, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to let you do that. And William Barr's DOJ is like, what do you mean? You, you don't have the authority to not let us do it. Uh, you just have to sign off on it. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. That Judge Sullivan. Congressman Andy Biggs, Arizona, also asked Julie Kelly about the deputy warden for the D.C. jail, Kathleen Landerkin's anti-Trump and anti-Republican social media posts. So the warden over the D.C. jail hates these people. I guess doesn't have a problem with whatever abuse is uh, fomented upon them. In October, Judge Royce Lamberth found the director of the D.C. Department of Corrections and the D.C. jail warden in contempt of court for repeatedly refusing to turn over medical records related to the care of Christopher Worrell, a former January 60-day knee who suffers from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. What happened in that case and what's his status now? So Judge Lamberth repeatedly asked for the medical records related to Christopher Worrell, who does suffer from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. His case worsened while he was in the D.C. jail. Um, he was denied medical care. He also broke his hand and was not getting attention for that. So his medical condition worsened. It finally, uh, a doctor decided uh, that he needed weekly chemotherapy, intensive chemo and radiation every week. And Judge Lamberth had had enough finally. Now, Judge Lambert has uh, signed off on many of these pretrial detention orders, but because he was not getting the documents that he requested in October, um, he cited both of them for contempt of court. He also referred this case to DOJ for civil rights violations. I have no update on that. And then Mr. Worrell was finally moved out of the D.C. jail so he could get the care that he needed. I still don't think he has a trial date yet either. Who is Kathleen Landerkin? 
Um, she was the deputy warden for the D.C. jail. I believe she is still there. As you know, uh, Representative Biggs, uh, there were several Republican House members who signed a letter demanding her resignation after social media posts showed uh, extreme political bias against former President Trump and Trump supporters. Um, it was racially biased. It was politically biased, religiously biased. As soon as it, her posts were exposed to the public, she deleted her Twitter account um, that showed exactly who she was and how her views of the people under her care. Thank you. Thank you. My time has expired, but Madam Chair, I would like to submit um, uh, screenshots of Ms. Landerkin's um, social media uh, depicting what Ms. Kelly has just um, just uh, stated. Without objection, so ordered. Thank you. Wow. So they had this guy in there, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He's a cancer patient, and they weren't allowing him medical treatment. And he also had a broken hand, and they weren't allowing medical treatment of the broken hand either. What on earth? What on earth? Now, Julie Kelly did write an article that we covered back on December 16th about uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene demanding firing of the D.C. jail official. Marjorie Taylor Greene wrote the letter to the mayor of Washington, D.C., and a handful of members of Congress signed the letter. Louis Gohmert, Texas, Matt Gates, Florida, Paul Gosar, Arizona, Andy Harris, Maryland, Bob Good, Virginia, Ralph Norman, South Carolina, Mary Miller, Illinois, Tom Tiffany, Wisconsin, Barry Moore, Alabama, Andy Biggs, Arizona, Lauren Bobert, Colorado, Michael Cloud, Texas, and Scott Perry, Pennsylvania. None of the representatives from Arkansas could be bothered. French Hill, Bruce Westerman, Rick Crawford, Steve Womack. Dan Crenshaw. We have a lot of listeners in the in the woodlands in the Houston area. Dan Crenshaw couldn't have been bothered. Nothing on here from uh, Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise. It's a shame. It's a real shame. Nothing on there from uh, from House leadership. Again, speaking of uh, speaking of this this warden. Let me take you back to December 7th and Louis Gohmert. But uh, I do, we did get a clue from uh, finding this tweet by the deputy, uh, our deputy warden, deputy warden Landerton, two years ago in response to this tweet, uh, had this to say what she thinks should be done with people who support Trump. Uh, she said it two years ago, and she's been carrying out what she said ever since she, these people were admitted to jail. These people need to be relieved of their duty. She's the one that, uh, when the four of us went up there to try to do a tour of the jail, 
uh, we were lured outside, and then she runs around back in and locked the door to the main lobby where people come in. So there are people that are in charge that should not be. They're, the inmates are being mistreated. And uh, as somebody that's been a prosecutor, a felony judge, and a uh, member of the Crime Subcommittee ever since I've been here, I've toured, no telling how many jails and prisons. And it's just hard for me to believe federal judges are allowing this to go on right here. It is a bad omen for the country that this is happening. Yeah, it is. It'd be nice uh, if more members of Congress were willing to man up and have some kind of courage about it. But they're not. They're not. Instead, you have uh, Ted Cruz the other day calling January 6th a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol. Ted Cruz is really smart. He's a brilliant attorney. His... uh, Law professor at Harvard, Alan Dershowitz, said he's probably the smartest student he ever had in his 40 years there teaching law. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. He tried to backtrack going on with the Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson kept on saying, you know, I don't believe you, though. I don't believe you. God bless Tucker for speaking truth to power there. So today's uh, U.S. House Judiciary Committee hearing Representative Greg Stubbe, 17th District of Florida, entered into the record an article about a federal judge finding the D.C. jail warden in contempt, and it went something like this. Uh, Now I'm pleased to yield five minutes to Mr. Stubbe. You're recognized. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, We've heard a lot today from witnesses about the Bureau of Prisons, so I do hope that, um, unfortunately, we don't have a witness from them today, so I do hope the chair is committed to um, bringing somebody in so we can ask some of these questions on both sides. I think we both have questions that we want answered. Uh, We've heard a lot today about Democrats wanting to let uh, folks out of prison in the middle of the biggest crime wave in decades Um, But they also don't want to let out people who have been charged with misdemeanors who are languishing in prison um, for January 6th. And I want to read and quote from the district judge his exact quote. Uh, And I quote, for the reasons stated in open court, it is a judge that the warden of the D.C. jail, Wanda Patton, and director of the D.C. Department of Corrections, Quincy Booth, are in civil contempt of court. U.S. District Judge Royce Lambert of Washington ruled, the clerk of the court is ordered to transmit a copy of this order to the Attorney General of the United States for appropriate inquiry into potential civil rights violations of January 6th defendants, as exemplified in this case. Now, we haven't heard from DOJ as to whether they're actually doing that or not. I would love for another opportunity to question uh, A.G. Garland and the full committee about that. He goes on, I find that the civil rights of the defendant have been abused, Lambert uh, said at a hearing. I don't know if it's because he's a January 6th defendant or not, but I find this matter should be referred to the Attorney General of the United States for a civil rights investigation into whether the D.C. Department of Corrections is violating the civil rights of January 6th defendants in this and maybe other cases. I ask unanimous consent, um, Chair, to enter into the record Fox News article, Federal Judge Finds D.C. Jail Warden in Contempt. Without objection, so ordered. That's Sheila Jackson Lee. Sheila Jackson Lee is the 
the chair of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, if you can imagine that. That's just nuts. That's just nuts. And, you know, I mean, I've, uh, there, there's a lot more. There's so much I, I'm, I'm trying to share with you today. Um, and I'm thankful to have this, this platform, this, this opportunity to share these things with you. But you know, you know what time it is. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. All right, Tweet of the Day brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way. Big old car dealership in the middle of America believes in freedom, including your freedom your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice and have it delivered to your front door. Okay. Um, tweet of the day from James Lindsay, who calls himself Conceptual James, watching narratives crumble. He's got a two-minute video here. From a young lady who is speaking to a school board. He says, part of an amazing speech by a courageous young lady at a school board meeting. This deserves to go viral. We'll do what we can right here, James Lindsay. Here we go. Thank you for teaching students that our own mental health is much less important than making triple vaccinated adults feel safe. Thank you for teaching me that even the most minute risk is not worth taking. Life is best when you take the path of least resistance, with no chance of failure, and definitely no chance of catching a cold. Thank you for not reaching out to the students to ask how we feel about masks, because if you did, the majority of students would say that they hate masks, and then you might second-guess your decision to make us wear them. Thank you for allowing me to experience the anxiety associated with never seeing facial expressions. Thank you for teaching us that we should never question authority or think critically, but instead, we should follow whatever the people in charge tell us to do. Obedience is best. I realize now that thinking for yourself is overrated and not really necessary when you can just make decisions based on fear. Thank you for pushing your irrational fears and anxieties on me because I didn't already have enough to worry about. I realize now how easy it, I had it when I only had to worry about my classes, my grades, SAT, and getting into college. Thank you for teaching me that being a morally superior person only requires that I cover my face for eight hours a day, and that the most morally superior people wear two masks or even three masks. As you know, states around us, Indiana, Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan, and Minnesota, which have two and a half times more students than Illinois, don't force cats don't force kids to wear to masks. I'm with you, though. These states are out of control, recklessly putting kids at risk of misery and death every day. Masks work, even if these states have the same outcomes as Illinois. Speaking of data, thank you for staying silent without mask, about masking, despite the fact that COVID has a very high survival rate in kids my age. Who needs data anyway, though? We all know that it will never be safe to see anyone's face ever again. Whew. Heartbreaking, isn't it? 
frustrating, outraging. That is today's uh, Tweet of the Day from James Lindsay watching narratives crumble, conceptual James, part of an amazing speech by a courageous young lady at a school board meeting. This deserves to go viral. Uh, we do we do what we can. Thank you so much to uh, to <clears throat> redriveryourway.com for sponsoring today's Tweet of the Day. I want to get back to the Julie Kelly's testimony today, U.S. House Judiciary Committee, about what's going on with the political prisoners. But first, let me ask you something. Do you have migraines? Do you have neck pain, back pain, vertigo, breathing issues, blood sugar issues? Okay, now look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Is the answer to any of these questions yes? Well, then you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines and neck pain. Let me tell you how it works, because this is the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's real easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up, kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, your reproductive system, your circulatory system, yes, even your digestive system. And it can cause migraines, neck pain, vertigo, all kinds of maladies. Do yourself a favor. If you're in central Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the tab that says find a doctor to see if you can find a doctor close to you. Once again, if you're in central Arkansas, call Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009 for free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the tab find a doctor near you, and see if you can do that, and you'll be glad you did. I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate them sponsoring us here on the Doc Washburn Show. So let me get back to Julie Kelly's testimony today, House Judiciary Committee, about the January 6th defendants. U.S. Representative Greg Stubbe of Florida asked Julie Kelly about the press and Attorney General Garland's smears hyperbolic great hyperbole of january 6 defendants and julie also discusses how surveillance footage shows many january 6 defendants being let into the capitol by capitol police here we go even january 6 suspects who are accused of minor crimes uh, ones simply charged with trespassing or parading are the targets of hyperbolic statements and smears by Merrick Garland's propaganda press team. Can you speak to some examples of this? And just recently in Florida, I read of an individual who simply walked into the, the Capitol, was, no, was not violent, didn't commit any other crime than other walking in, uh, gets a year of probation, uh, has to deal with house arrest and all these other things, which if it was reversed, like the Department of Interior, we've heard nothing of those who raided the Department of Interior. Um, questions I asked A.G. Garland at the last time he was before the committee. Um, could you, could you uh, expand on that? 
Uh, yes, thank you so much, Representative. So it's important to note that the most often used charge for capital protesters is a Class B misdemeanor called parading or picketing in the Capitol building. Um, and that is what most of the defendants, not necessarily the ones in the D.C. jail, but most of the defendants have been charged with. Um, and again, the, it's important to remember these people, almost all of them, have no criminal record, but that doesn't stop prosecutors in Joe Biden and Merrick Garland's Justice Department from suggesting that they are domestic terrorists, even if they were let into the building by Capitol Police, as we now have surveillance video that proves that that is the case, went in, thought that they were allowed in, took selfies, some were in for five, ten minutes, left peacefully, they were not arrested, they were not told they weren't allowed there, and then woke up to FBI raids at their homes. The Justice Department is asking for harsh penalties, sometimes three years probation, um, sometimes home detention. But what's even more, um, I think, egregious are D.C. district judges who even go above and beyond what the Justice Department is asking and imprisoning these paraders for 30, 60, 90 days in jail, condemning them as potential terrorists attempting to overthrow democracy that day. All of the hyperbole you see in the press, you also hear in the courtroom. Um, and so that is what they're doing to uh, trespassers who thought they were doing nothing wrong on January 6th. Wow. I'm putting it out there for you, you know. Many, many members of Congress, Republican and Democrat, couldn't care less. And I include all, all of the congressional delegation from Arkansas, French Hill, Bruce Westerman, Rick Crawford, Steve Womack in the House, and Tom Cotton and John Bozeman, in the Senate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those of y'all outside Arkansas see Tom Cotton on national television on a regular basis think, oh, he's a great patriot. What has he done about this? Don't even get me started on him, you know, stabbing Trump in the back and telling other members of Congress to uh, not support Trump's claims the election was stolen. But most other members of Congress couldn't care less. Um, Julie Kelly did, uh, she did an article back in October entitled new capital video contradicts justice department media narrative on January 6th. Just a little quote from that article over the objection of Joe Biden's justice department, a lengthy video clip showing U.S. Capitol Police allowing hundreds of people into the building on the afternoon of January 6th has been released to the public. That was back in October. And there's footage. Capitol Police letting hundreds of people into the Capitol on January 6th. So, Greg Steubing, pardon me, Steubi, Greg Steubi of Florida, District 17, has one more question for Julie Kelly in her testimony today before the House Judiciary Committee. And some of that video shows that there was officers that were standing there while people entered and, and were doing nothing about it. 
the treatment of January 6th suspects has been far different than BLM rioters and others accused of liberal goals through violence, including the Department of Interior that I asked A.G. Garland about, and he seemed to not even know that that happened blocks from his office. January 6th suspects have been interrogated by the FBI about their political beliefs, such as whether they thought the 2020 election was fair. Can you discuss the role political motivations have played in the treatment of January 6th suspects, both in prison and in terms of prosecution? So not only are they asked about their political views by by investigators, they've been asked what kind of news that they watch. Yes, whether they believe that the 2020 election was stolen, their views on immigration. Um, I've seen in sentencing memos, especially for one man who was sentenced uh, for parading in the Capitol, they retrieved um, social media posts from his deleted Facebook account that were negative against uh, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats. And that was used as evidence um, to try to convince a judge successfully that this particular man should go to jail for three months for parading in the Capitol. You got it? There are political prisoners being held in the United States of America. There are political prisoners being held in the United States of America. There's 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 no there's no other way to, to put it. Now Congressman Jim Jordan out of Ohio asks Julie Kelly some questions. So here's how that went. I'm very pleased to yield to the ranking member of the full committee, uh, Mr. Jordan, for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Appreciate the, the witnesses. Appreciate you putting this, this hearing together. Uh, Ms. Kelly, let me see if I have the facts straight. First, the deputy warden at the D.C. jail, Ms. Landerkin, the person in charge of day-to-day operations at the jail, had a number of social media posts in the previous couple years expressing her dislike for the former president and anyone who may or may have not supported uh, or may have supported the president. One of those tweets, I think she said, if you're behind Trump, you are trash. And I think the the ranking member of the committee put those up earlier. Uh, You, Ms. Kelly, have talked to individuals in the D.C. jail uh, personally, and they have expressed the conditions under which they were being held that seem to reflect the attitude that Ms. Landerkin, uh, Landerkin conveyed in that tweet. Third, on October 13th, 2021, Judge Lambert held the D.C. warden in contempt and asked the Department of Justice to investigate a possible civil rights violation in the way they were being held in this facility. And fourth, the U.S. Marshal Services has moved inmates out of the D.C. jail because of the poor conditions uh, of that facility. Are those four facts accurate? Yes, that is correct. Good grief, man. Good grief. So is anybody going to do anything? More from Julie Kelly, her testimony today, uh, U.S. House Judiciary Committee. What we really have is political prison in the United States. We have defendants, Americans, who protested the election of Joe Biden, 
who are not being treated the same as other political protesters, including those with similar, if not far more dangerous offenses than what happened on January 6th. Um, and so I, I appreciate the attention to this. Um, I think it's also important to know, given all that we're hearing about the pandemic, that this Justice Department prosecutors continue to seek pretrial detention for January 6th defendants and also extending their pretrial detention orders signed off by federal judges. There is no compassion or consideration, at least in this legal and judicial system. And it sounds like that extends throughout the country, certainly when it comes to the situation uh, with Ms. Levy. So um, I, I once again just appreciate the committee's attention to this. Thank you. What we really have is political prison. Oh, in wait, the wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. We have defendants, Americans who protest sorry, the election over. of Joe Biden. I apologize. Being- sorry, sorry. Didn't mean to start over there. Didn't mean to start over there. Um, but yeah, this, uh, this warden needs to be fired. This warden needs to be fired. And from a few days ago, Representative uh, Matt Gates speaking to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene about January 6th. You mentioned the January 6th detainees, and there are a lot of Americans today who will think, gosh, you know, are these folks being treated unfairly, unjustly? Are they being deprived of their constitutional rights? And when all of the conventional thinking in Washington, D.C. was to have Republicans not talk about that, you really took on civil rights and constitutional rights as your cause. And you produced an oversight report for the entire Congress that now we've put into the congressional record that exposed a lot of stuff there. What gave you the instinct to speak up for those folks when it seemed like everybody else was just willing to abandon them? Well, you were with me. We went well, but you led it. I mean, in, in, in all honesty, you led that effort and you were the catalyst for it. Well, I'm great. I'm grateful for the support you gave and you went with me. I think you and I both care about, we care about our country and we care about our constitution and we care about due process. I mean, here you studied and you know, you're an attorney. So it's something that you've seen uh, up front and been involved in the, the process, due process. It's an incredible thing. Uh, being presumed innocent before you're proven guilty. Uh, pretrial defendants, they have rights, but yet their rights are being completely abused. And we're seeing a real two-tiered justice system in America that we can't allow to stand regardless of the crimes they committed because we have an institution for a reason and we've got to do everything we can to protect it. So this is, this is important to me, but I think it's important to all Americans because everywhere I go, you know, people are angry about inflation. They're really mad at it and people are so mad at the border, but they're used to it because it's been going on so long and, and they don't want to see any of the things that are happening. But what they're very upset about is they're very upset about who, what's happening to these people in jail. And they're so upset about what is happening to our country and who are the Democrats really? And what is, what are they going to do with COVID? And when does it ever stop? And so these are the things that people care about most. They don't care about, ooh, take back the majority. Yeah, we want to take back the majority, but we want to do something with it. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? But, you know, I mean, to do something with it, you're going to have to get rid of a lot of the rhinos in Congress. 
to do something with it. Okay? To do something with it, you're going to have to replace all of the Republican leadership in both sides, the Senate and the House. You know? You're going to have to. Because the people in charge right now don't care. They don't care. Now, I've got so much stuff uh, saved here that I want to talk about. Um, And I'm, I'm still looking. I don't know if you realize this. But um, the hostages at the synagogue six days ago, they weren't set free by law enforcement. They got out themselves. Were were you aware of this? (laughs) Yeah. Not only that. But this guy had not been in the U.S. for very long. Okay? He had not been in the U.S. for very long, and he came here with the express intent of killing Americans. Okay, all right, all right, we found it, we found it. Cameron Gray is a friend of mine. Back in the 90s, he and John Pop produced and directed the uh, great G. Gordon Liddy show. Irreverently known to some as the G-Man. So Cameron Gray, out there on Twitter yesterday morning, linking to an article from the J- Jerusalem Post, quoting the Colleyville, Texas synagogue terrorist Malik Faisal Akram, who said he was opening the door for attacks in the United States. Quote, we're coming to effing America. We'll give them effing war, unquote. And he has the uh, the audio where this guy's saying, I'm in a synagogue. I've got four beautiful guys, Jewish guys with me. I'm bombed up. I've got effing every ammunition I've only been here two weeks, and I've got them all at gunpoint, unquote. Why are we not getting this from American media? That's a good question, Cameron. Only U.S. outlet I can find with this story is the New York Post. Does anyone see any others? Malik Akram told his brother, quote, I'm coming home in a body bag, unquote. In his chilling final call. Why? The FBI declines to comment on mystery man reportedly seen with Temple hostage taker. Oh, oh, there was a mystery man seen with him. Hmm. Wonder why that is. And my buddy Cameron Gray also links to the Twitchy team. Let's see what uh, the folks at Twitchy have. An article entitled... 
We're coming to effing America. We're giving them effing war. Gosh, looks like mainstream media left a lot out about the Texas synagogue gunman. All right, we are about at the point where Podbean usually cuts off the live stream. But don't worry. Whatever we do past two hours and six minutes will be on the uh, on the podcast we upload here in a little bit. Okay? Because there's so much that uh, is so important. And even though I'm not really feeling well today, um, I'm going to share with you as much as I can for as long as I can. Uh, first of all, though, a comment from over at... Uh, the Podbean app says, as a true patriot, unlike Tom Cotton and Dan Crenshaw claim to be, I'm a conservative. I pray these corrupt men and women of Congress one day answer for their lies and crimes against the American people for their own political gain. They may not yet answer for their actions here on this earthly plane, but they will answer amongst the eternal plane. I pray every day that the political prisoners on Capitol Hill may one day be released and reunited with their families. I don't know what else to do. I don't either. I don't either. And I I appreciate y'all's prayers for my wife and me. She tested positive for COVID on Monday. I tested negative. You know, I still got symptoms, so I don't know. We'll see. Let me go back to um, what you're not being told about the hostage-taking event at the Jewish synagogue in the Dallas-Fort Worth metro last Saturday. Okay, so over at uh, twitchy.com, it says this. Remember when the FBI tried to tell us the Texas gunman's issue wasn't with the Jewish community, even though he was in a synagogue? Wow. Turns out there's a lot more to the story that our pals in the mainstream media are not overly happy to share with us. We would wonder why they're not covering what to us seems like a pretty big deal. But then again, we know who they are and we know what their mission is, and it's not to report the news. And then she links to the uh, Cameron Gray tweets that I mentioned earlier. Here, This is from the New York Post. Malik Faisal Akram, the terrorist who held four people hostage in a Collierville, Texas synagogue earlier this week, in a recording of a call with his brother, Gulbar, published by the Jewish Chronicle on Wednesday, says, quote, I'm opening the doors for every youngster to enter America and F with them, unquote. Akram can be heard telling his brother he demanded that Pakistani al-Qaeda-affiliated Afia Siddiqui, who is serving an 86-year prison sentence for multiple felonies, be released and brought to him. Quote, I've told them I'll release these four guys. I'll come on the yard. I'll have a toe-to-toe with you. Shoot me dead. Shoot her, Siddiqui, dead, because I'm dead and she's dead. She's got 84 more years, right? Opening the doors for every youngster to enter America through the southern border, maybe? He's only been here two weeks. Huh. Where'd he come from? How'd he get in? Think we're starting to understand why the FBI and our pals in the media weren't overly anxious to share all of this with us? Well, 
And again, what about the mystery man seen with him? Why, oh, why would the FBI decline? Then again, why would they try and pretend a gunman literally in a synagogue was not targeting the Jewish community? Something strange is afoot at the Circle FBI. Yes, it certainly is. It certainly is. And again, and again, they got out themselves. They weren't set free by local police, by Texas Rangers, by the FBI. They got out themselves. And that was the remarkable thing. Now remember, we've got people who have been held in prison with no bail for over a year for nonviolent misdemeanors. But the media wants you to forget all about the Black Lives Matter fanatic who mowed down like 60 people in the Waukesha, Wisconsin Christmas parade, murdering six of them. They want you to forget all about that, right? Just the thought. Just the thought. Dan Crenshaw. If you're in uh, suburban Houston, Here's your boy becoming unglued when asked why he attacks Marjorie Taylor Greene more than Alexandria Occasional Cortex. Here it is. 100% Liberty score. Now, let me answer your question about Marjorie. So you say I attack Marjorie worse than I attack AOC. What? That's insane, I think, to say. Well, well, why are you attacking Marjorie at all? Well, because I responded to her, sir. She attacks me constantly seeking my attention. And I responded once. Once. And you make it seem like I'm just attacking her out of the blue. There's actually been a lot. This is actually another good good thing to debunk lately because people are like, why is he picking fights with everybody on our own side? No, 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 no. I only respond. When you hit me, I'll hit you back. I am a SEAL after all. Yes! Yes! Now, when somebody slanders me in public, I'm going to respond. And Marjorie does that on a, on a very consistent basis. There's no, there's no two ways about it. I'm not your typical politician. We know. I will not come here. I will not pander. I will not do all that. I will not say the things just because I know how easy it is. So to respectfully, say the that you want to hear. I want a statesman. I don't want a politician. I'm a big supporter of yours two years ago. For whatever reason, you've lost that support. I am the SD4 chairman. Okay. I'm working against you. Thank you. And, and I, but I want to respect your uh, your military service, and I want you to come back to be. Where no one in this room questions your concerns. There's a lot of people who are questioning it. Why? There's things you say and do that make us question. And I I'm asking you to, to be conservative. Them, I, I'm, I'm done. I took too much time. But, sir, I thank you. I thank you for your service. That's Dan Crenshaw, the one who's talking about how wonderful uh, Liz Cheney is and uh, climate change, he says, is real. And he scoffs, he mocks people who think that the election was stolen. So he's being primaried in the 2nd District. 
of Texas. And good. And good. All right. Now, that having been said, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky has a new definition of what fully vaccinated means. And what we really are working to do is pivot the language to make sure that everybody is is as up to date with their COVID-19 vaccines as they personally could be, should be, based on when they got their last vaccine. So importantly, right now, we're pivoting our language. We really want to make sure people are up to date. That means if you recently got your second dose, you're not eligible for a booster, you're up to date. If you are eligible for a booster and you haven't gotten it, you're not up to date and you need to get your booster in order to be up to date. Tom Fitton over at uh, Judicial Watch says the CDC is corrupt and has utter contempt for the public. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And yet, there are still people in churches in America praying that people will follow the CDC's guidelines. What the heck, man? What the heck? Okay, breaking news. TheHill.com has it. Prosecutors say Oath Keeper's leader, Stuart Rhodes, is too dangerous to be released on bond. Julie Kelly reminds us he's been out for over a year with other nonviolent Oath Keepers. Pardon me. He's been out for over a year while other nonviolent Oath Keepers have been behind bars for months. Really? Really? But now he's too dangerous. Now he's too dangerous. So, so Kyle Cheney, senior legal affairs reporter for Politico, says Representative Andy Biggs used his opening statement at a Judiciary Committee hearing on prison reform to claim that most January 6th pretrial detainees held in D.C. jail should have been released. Response from Zoe Tillman, senior reporter at BuzzFeed News. She says the majority of January 6th defendants in pretrial detention are charged with assaulting or interfering with police. For the rest, the bulk are charged with weapons offenses, more serious crimes like conspiracy. She's not going to get away with that. Julie Kelly says, keyword charged. Corporate media now supports solitary confinement and denial of due process for political protesters awaiting trial, some for more than a year, because January 6th. That's just, that's just insane. Kyle Cheney again at Politico says, some of the detention decisions have been close calls for judges, including some Trump appointees who have agreed to detain several of the January 6th attendants. Others have not been particularly close questions. Julie Kelly again responds, no, they haven't. Most judges eagerly consent to Biden's DOJ pretrial detention motions. DOJ continues to argue for extended incarceration as they delay trial dates. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. No, I've got more. Texas Congressman Chip Roy levels Nick Saban says should have studied Georgia's laws better than he did Georgia's defense. 
Daily Wire. U.S. Representative Chip Roy, Republican Texas, slammed Alabama head football coach Nick Saban on Thursday in response to Saban signing onto a letter trying to pressure Senator Joe Manchin, Senator West Virginia, into voting for Democrats' left-wing voting agenda. Chip Roy said, and I quote, they use that term on purpose, voting rights, because who could possibly be against voting rights? For example, allow me to quote from acclaimed election history and law experts Jerry West, Nick Saban, Paul Tagliabue and company, quote, in the last year, some 20 states have enacted dozens of laws that restrict voting access and allow local officials or state legislatures to interfere inappropriately with federal election outcomes motivated by the anticipated motivated by the unanticipated outcomes of recent close elections conducted with integrity, they say. These state laws seek to secure partisan advantage by limiting reliable practices with proven safeguards and substituting practices ripe for manipulation. No doubt these famed election law experts spent the weekend reading the federal legislation for which they were lobbying. Because, I mean, I got the 700-page bill at 11.30 last Thursday night before voting on it Friday, he continued. I assume they read it thoroughly over the weekend as my staff stayed up in the middle of the night doing to actually see what was in the bill. I assume, too, that they know, for example, that the bill would lead to completely outlawing or eliminating voter identification. Do they know that four in five Americans, 80 percent, support requiring voters to show photo ID in order to cast a ballot? I know my colleagues are sure fine with everybody having to show voter identification with vax cards all across the country, including the nation's capital. Do they know that Delaware and Connecticut require photo or non-photo ID? He concluded, and more, I'm certain that they have studied the intricacies of Texas law before disparaging it. I'm sure they spent time looking at that. Or, say, studied the Georgia election law at least a little better than studying the University of Georgia's, say, defense. Do they know that Georgia has 17 days of early voting and President Biden's home state of Delaware only has 10 dates? Are we looking at Delaware? Nick Saban's team lost, of course, to the University of Georgia in the college football playoff national championship earlier this month. Chip Roy is on fire, y'all. That's a conservative. That's a conservative representative from Texas. That's the real deal. All right, now, having said that, let me get on to more. Uh, TSA says arrest warrants count as ID for illegal migrants at uh, airport security. Were you aware of this? Jenny Taylor has a story over Daily Caller exclusive Transportation Security Administration disclosed to a congressional office that illegal migrants flying without proper identification can use an arrest warrant as an alternative form of identification when presented when presenting to airport security, according to a letter the Daily Caller News Foundation exclusively obtained. Responding to Republican Texas, Representative Lance Gooden's December 15th inquiry about illegal migrants flying across the country, TSA Administrator David Pikosk explained certain Department of Homeland Security documents may be considered acceptable forms of alternate identification for non-citizens, including a warrant for arrest of alien, and a warrant of removal or deportation. It's messed up, y'all. It's messed up. I ain't going to lie, fam. It is messed up. 
All right, Zero Hedge has this. New emails expose Fauci's role in shaping highly influential paper that established COVID national, natural origin narrative. I thought we'd already heard about that. Because there's new stuff out just uh, buttressing that allegation. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says, I hope you will join me in s- this Sunday in Washington, D.C. Thousands to march in D.C. January 23rd to defeat COVID vaccine mandates. And he's got a little video. Got a little video. I wonder how this goes. Because we can change the world. Sounds familiar. Well, they're lying and distractors, and they're fooling us with fear. Won't you please come out to protest? Show your face. In a land once known as freedom, how can such a thing occur? Won't you please come out to protest? Let's get some We can change. of everybody in this crowd to go out and fight back to resist, 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 resist. Throw your mandates out the door. Wow. Childrenshealthdefense.org. Yeah, there's big, uh, a big demonstration going on, peaceful demonstration this Sunday this Sunday, to defeat the COVID vaccine mandates. And it starts at 11.30 a.m. Eastern. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, I know that when the Global COVID Summit people were in North Little Rock recently, they were talking about uh, joining in this. Prominent anti-mandate pro-science advocates will address the the crowd that includes Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Del Bigtree, Laura Logan, Dr. Paul Merrick, Dr. Pierre Corey, Chris Martinson, Steve Kirsch, Dr. Robert Malone, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Christina Parks, Dr. Paul Alexander, Attorney Tricia Lindsay, uh, Kevin Jenkins, Reverend Aaron Lewis, Rabbi Epstein, Trammell Johnson, Joe Rose of Joe Speaks Truth, Angela Stanton King, Kwame Brown, Trey Hearn Cruz, and others. Comedian J.P. Sears will emcee the event. So pray that it goes peacefully. I didn't expect the music there. Um, they used the uh, they used the the music from uh, a song from fifty years ago. Uh, 
from David Crosby and Graham Nash. More news. Exclusive from Axios. Joe Biden's inaugural committee will mark the first anniversary in office by blanketing airwaves with a video narrated by Tom Hanks promoting a recovering, resilient America. Well, he's a good actor, but I don't think he can pull this off. Aha, 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 Um, Dr. Pierre Corey reminds us the U.K. has dropped vaccine passports. Israel says boosters don't work anymore. The World Health Organization and the European version of FDA says repeated boosters are not feasible or healthy. Does this mean we can officially stop this folly of repeatedly vaccinating against cold viruses and just do early treatment finally? And, of course, Twitter is trying to uh, censor that. All right, breaking, 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 breaking news from uh, from uh, Jesse Matchy, retired, retired Army Blackhawk pilot, medevac, former financial planner, Jesse Matchy, independent journalist. Epstein and Maxwell's were involved with World Economic Forum's Fourth Industrial Revolution. Really? So what is this all about? And he links to uh, Katie Heaney over over thecut.com. Says the recent New York Times story revealed Jeffrey Epstein, alleged sex trafficker and mega-rich financier, has long held beliefs in transhumanism. Defined by the New York Times as the science of improving the human population through technologies like genetic engineering and artificial intelligence. But what does that mean and what would it entail? What does Jeffrey Epstein have to do with transhumanism? For his part, Epstein hoped to spread his DNA throughout the human race by impregnating women at his New New Mexico ranch, presumably under the assumption that his DNA is somehow superior to the average human's DNA. Epstein was able to attract a number of prominent scientist friends, including George M. Church, a Harvard professor and geneticist who has done work on synthetic genes, and evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould, now deceased. According to the New York Times, Epstein was able to lure scientists into his circle through lavish spending, both personally and professionally, in the form of research donations. The New York Times story suggests Epstein's money encouraged some scientists to lend credence to Epstein's transhumanist ideals, though others insist they remained critical. Harvard cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker called him an intellectual imposter. Yeah, think. So where did Epstein get these ideas? According to the New York Times, the scientist and author Jaron Lanier said a NASA scientist he once met at one of Epstein's dinner parties told Lanier, Epstein had been inspired by the story of the Repository for Germinal Choice, an elitist sperm bank created in 1980 with the express goal of strengthening the human gene pool with the sperm of Nobel Prize winners. Though 200 babies were eventually born of the sperm bank's efforts, none were the offspring of actual Nobel winners, and the repository was shut down in 1999. Mr. Lanier said he had the impression that Epstein used his exclusive dinner parties 
as a way to screen female guests for their potential to bear Epstein's children. So are there other transhumanists out there? Apparently so. In 2011, one of Epstein's charities gave $20,000 to an organization then called the Worldwide Transhumanist Association, now rebranded as Humanity Plus. The website defines transhumanism as the desire for people to be better than well. Humanity Plus is primarily an educational organization hosting conferences and leadership summits on topics related to transhumanism. Their site includes a page dedicated to the Transhumanist Declaration, which includes a statement, quote, We believe that humanity's potential is still mostly unrealized. There are possible scenarios that lead to wonderful and exceedingly worthwhile enhanced human conditions, unquote. Epstein's foundation, now defunct, also paid $100,000 salary to Humanity Plus's vice chairman, a guy named Ben Gertzel. What does transhumanism have to do with eugenics? Well, funny you should ask. Critics of transhumanism have compared the philosophy to eugenics, the discredited and ill-used belief that controlled breeding could improve the human race. Alan Dershowitz, a professor emeritus of law at Harvard, told the New York Times that conversations Epstein initiated with him called to mind the Nazis' use of eugenics as justification for genocide. Dershowitz, nonetheless, represented Epstein in court proceedings, uh, in court preceding his 2008 conviction on charges of soliciting prostitution from a minor. Differences between transhumanism and eugenics, then, is transhumanism does not explicitly encourage controlled human breeding nor the propagation of a particular race. Still, both movements envision a superior human race, a goal which history indicates is inseparable from socio-cultural ideals and prejudices. Next question, does the field of transhumanism have any scientific credibility? Funny you should ask. There's certainly interest. A recent study published in Nature Nanotechnology examined the potential for intersection between humans and machines, according to one of its authors, Dr. Yunlong Zhao from the Advanced Technology Institute at the University of Surrey. Oh, that's odd. Surrey. I, I figured the Dr. Yunlong Zhao might have been studying uh, somewhere in China. But, you know, Anki Zhang, another of the study's authors, told The Independent out of the U.K. he expects significant advancement in the next 10 to 15 years in the transhumanist field. Specifically, the interface between man and machine as recently depicted on the BBC show on the BBC show, years and years. At present, though, the technology required to complete such a transhumanist goal does not exist, which, as the week reports, has encouraged some scientists to pursue cryogenic preservation or freezing their bodies until such technology exists. Cryogenic preservation is itself a scientifically dubious endeavor. Amen, brother. Yeah, yeah. Scientifically dubious, absolutely. Yeah, because once you're dead, you're dead. An unnamed transhumanist told the New York Times that Epstein had told him he wanted his head uh, and his uh, reproductive orders to be cryogenically frozen. I'll bet he did. And I'll bet it didn't happen. I'll bet it didn't happen. All right, next, uh, Daniel Horowitz at theblaze.com. The danger of the momentum behind N95 respirators. He says, will the cloth masks 
just for psychological training purposes to get us to the main course of obsequious servitude to the gods of Fauci. It took nearly two years, but the public health experts are finally admitting what industrial hygienists knew from day one, masks do not work against airborne viruses. Yet rather than immediately remove these draconian restrictions, including masking two-year-olds on airplanes and school children for hours on end in many states, they're seamlessly gliding into the new position of promoting N95 respirators. Following the inveterate patterns of the past two years, they use the failure of their first position to their advantage to further panic people into blindly following their next recommendation until that becomes a mandate as well. January 2nd, no, I'm not making this up. January 2nd, former FDA Administrator Scott Gottlieb, the media's go-to so-called expert on all things pandemic, admitted what we all knew since 2020, but that got us banned from social media for saying so. Scott Gottlieb on Meet the Press said, and I quote, cloth masks aren't going to provide a lot of protection. That's the bottom line. This is an airborne illness. We now understand that. And a cloth mask is not going to protect you from a virus that spreads through airborne transmission, unquote. Well, some of us knew that early on in the pandemic. Two days later, New York Times ran an article telling people where to get N95s. States began mailing out N95 variations, and the CDC put out a new message, which between the lines gives the impression that if you're not wearing an N95, you don't really have protection. The Biden administration plans to distribute millions of them to local pharmacies. But is there really any evidence that the same people who were wrong about masks are now suddenly connected to God's word when it comes to respirators? And who says it's safe for people to wear something like that for long periods of time, which until now required rigorous testing, medical exams, and training? Yes, N95s, unlike masks, actually meet the standard for PPE and Hazardous environments, but for which sort of hazard? Not an airborne respiratory virus. Stephen Petty, certified industrial hygienist and hazardous exposure expert, sent me a copy of an N95 usage label made by 3M that he enlarged into an infographic. It turns out the company's own disclosure blows up the myth of using an N95 for viral protection. The label confirms what everyone understood prior to the mask mania of COVID, which is this. Neither masks nor N95 respirators can stop aerosols, certainly not viral ones, which are much smaller than bacteria. What's truly revealing is that the label recommends against relying on them for source protection, even against asbestos particles, which are on average 5 microns, which is 50 times larger than the SARS-CoV-2 virus. A large randomized controlled trial published just months before the discovery of SARS-CoV-2 before masking became a political and social control tool, showed no benefit to N95s over surgical masks in terms of protection against the flu. The authors of the large trial published on the, in the Journal of American Medical Association September 3, 2019 said, Among outpatients, healthcare personnel in 95 respirators versus medical masks, as worn by participants in this trial, resulted in no significant difference in the incidence of laboratory-confirmed influenza. Also remember that most people are not wearing sealed N95s. They wear the respirators loosely on their faces as they do surgical masks. 
Also, many of them are the Chinese version KN95s. Even the CDC admits about 60% of KN95 respirators and IOSH evaluated during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 and 2021 did not meet the requirements that they intended to meet. The same study that found just 10% and 12% reduction in aerosols for cloth and blue surgical masks, respectively, actually found that KN95s worn improperly with three millimeter gaps between the face and the respirator, as most people wear them, only offer a little over 3% filtration efficiency, less than the cloth masks. And remember, these studies are all conducted in labs, not in the real world, where no study has shown a statistically significant benefit to masks. And the basic epidemiological data has disproven the efficacy for two years. Take Austria, for example, where they've been mandating N95 respirators in stores. I mean, can you spot the efficacy? And he has a big chart up there. The notion that children could properly wear a form-fitted N95 that effectively seals is both absurd and dangerous, and anything else will absolutely not work. There's clearly an inverse relationship between safety and efficacy. The only thing that might possibly work will cause danger which is why the federal government has long mandated very specific criteria for wearing respirators, okay? In an interview with The Blaze, Stephen Petty, who has served as an expert witness in hundreds of industrial hazardous exposure court cases and now serves as a witness for those bringing lawsuits against irresponsible mask mandates, said while some misrepresent N95s as masks, They're actually respirators and will require one to follow the OSHA requirements for respirators under the respiratory protection standard. In other words, a written program, medical clearance, initial fit testing, annual fit testing, no facial hair, worker training. And then he has a list of OSHA requirements that would have to be met for usage of N95 respirators. And it's long. And this is ridiculous. And they're just trying to control us. And they don't care if we live or die. You quote me on that. You can quote me on that. All right? So, random act of journalism. Yesterday morning, Savannah Guthrie, Today Show, actually tried to hold Kamala Harris responsible, accountable. Here it is. Let's talk about another comment the president made. He openly cast doubt on whether the 2022 midterm elections would be legitimate. He said it all depends, um, which is astonishing to hear a president question whether our elections will be legitimate. We've heard it before, but not from this president. Is he really concerned that, that we may not have fair and free elections? The president has been consistent on this issue and the issue at hand, the issue I was there last night uh, in the chamber of the Senate and the issue is that there are two bills, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act that have been the, the solution that has been offered to address the fact that around our country states have put in place laws that are purposely making it more difficult for the American people to vote. Laws which will be felt by at least 55 million Americans regardless of their party affiliation, their race, their gender, or their geographic location. Well, the- Never forget, 
If you work for the Biden administration, you get paid to lie. And that's exactly what she's doing. Based their gender or their geographic location. Well, to the point, though, because so those we bills have been were clear, debated. And it's, but it's, yeah, the, the, the bills it's, were debated it's, it's, and they didn't pass. pass. If, so I the, finish, the if I may finish, if I may course, finish. But the specific question, if you don't mind, does he think, now that these bills haven't been passed, that the 22 midterms won't be legitimate or fair or free? Let's not conflate issues. So She's not conflating issues. She's asking a straight question and you're avoiding it. Well, what we are looking at, and, and the topic of so much debate last night, was that we as America cannot afford to allow this blatant erosion of our democracy, and in particular, the right of all Americans who are eligible to vote to have access to the ballot unfettered. Which they do, and she knows it, and she's lying. She wants the feds to take over state elections, she wants there to be widespread fraud and abuse and stealing of elections and nothing the states can do about it. That's what these two bills are about. They're not voting rights bills. Anybody who's a citizen wants to vote can vote. And the bills actually make it easier. That is the topic of the conversation. And let's not be distracted by the political gamesmanship. Let's not be distracted by what the president actually said. Oops, I called him that. I'm sorry. He's not the president. He's the usurper. He stole the election. I'll never admit he's president. When what is truly at stake are, are, are issues like whether Americans with disability have the opportunity to vote by mail, whether a single parent has the opportunity with three kids in the back seat to vote by dropping off their ballot in a drop box instead of having to stand in line with those three kids for hours. These are the issues that are at stake. And the president laid a lot of and, and, yeah. and pivotal issues in terms of our democracy. We had an extensive conversation about foreign policy. Savannah. Well, I've met with I've met with prime ministers and presidents from around the globe, both partners and allies of ours. They are asking. Wait, partners and allies? Not just one or the other? Wow. How many words do you think you put out there to try to keep from answering your question? What is going on with voting rights in America? Because they look to us as a role model of what it means to be a democracy. And they are monitoring to wonder and question whether there is an erosion of our democracy and therefore an erosion of one of the best role models of what a democracy does and can do. Thank God we're not a democracy. Thank God our founders knew better than to allow us to be a democracy. Democracy's mob rule. They want us to be, they want us to be a congressional republic, a representative republic. All right, have you heard about the murder of the young lady at the uh, high-class furniture store in L.A. the other day? Because... I've got a, uh, I got a very important thread about the consequences of what they call criminal justice reform. Criminal justice reform. And it's heartbreaking and it's enraging. So, uh, and this is Pedro L. Gonzalez who links to this, he writes over the Chronicles Mag and it's the Claremont Institute. 
Um, he says it's also worth noting. Also worth noting that the criminal record of Brianna Kupfer's killer includes trespassing and entering a premise after warning. I wonder if he liked jogging into other people's houses. That's what he says. All right, so here's the um, <clears throat> here's the thread from this guy named David, who is the uh, CCO of the Populist Union, National Conservative writer and activist. Brianna Kupfer, UCLA student, was 24 years old, was alone at the store when a homeless man wandered in, killed her, and left. Sean Lavelle Smith, the suspect, is said to have a lengthy rap sheet spanning the U.S. from South Carolina to California. Let's go over that record. Sean Lavelle Smith, 2013, weed possession, littering on highways, disorderly conduct. 2015, driving without license, careless driving. 2016, trespassing, resisting arrest. 2018, contempt of court. 2019, entering premises after warning. 2019, firing into an occupied vehicle. Regarding the last offense, he's still free on $50,000 bail more than two years later. In 2016, the South Carolina Police Department issued a public appeal for information about Sean Laval Smith, saying he was wanted on 14 active warrants for his arrest for bicycle thefts that he had committed. So from red states to blue states, this deranged, uncivilized criminal was operating and being let off the hook again and again. Until January 13th this year, when he walked into a furniture store and stabbed Brianna Kuffer, a 24-year-old UCLA student, to death. 30 minutes after police say he stabbed Kuffer to death, Smith is seen casually shopping at a 7-Eleven buying items. Why did this happen? Reason being, George Gascon, the L.A. prosecutor, who said on November 11th, the removal of convictions will help people get back on their feet after facing barriers from a criminal conviction. He said the dismissal will help 60,000 people better participate in today's society. This crime comes on the heels of a New York Post report. Soft on crime, LADA ripped after child molester faces little or no time. And the quote from that article, what we're trying to do is clear the path in order to create a safer community for all of us. Oh, by letting the dangerous people run around free. Remarkable, isn't it? They want to help criminals by letting them free. They want to help our communities by ensuring people with a history of crimes and violence can live as disheveled disheveled homeless people on the street. There's nothing new. This has been said before. But if we stop saying it out of fear of sounding repetitive, we fall into the trap of normalizing the skyrocketing crime in our major cities. The shaking of America's security and the negligence of the mainstream press. To talk about this forces us to be repetitive. Sean Laval Smith is deserving of the most severe penalty for his crimes, 
and so do the negligent prosecutors, DAs, and other so-called officials, which enabled this type of behavior. Her name was Brianna Kupfer. They won't remember her or report her story, so we must. So we must, and this is one of the reasons that I'm going long today because there's too much to talk about. There's too much to talk about. All right, did you know that more than two dozen FBI agents had descended on the home of a United States representative in Texas who blasted Biden and Harris over the border crisis? Now, he happens to be a Democrat. That's what makes it unusual. It makes it unusual that over two dozen federal agents have descended on his home. It makes it unusual that he slammed Biden and Harris for the border crisis. But his district is on the border. Uh, the great David J. Harris, uh, djhjmedia.com is his website. And Stephen All, who writes for the website, says, I'm sure it's only a coincidence that so many people who criticize this administration find themselves in trouble with corrupt Christopher Ray's FBI. In another example of overkill, the FBI sent two dozen agents to the home of Democrat Representative Henry Cuellar in Laredo, Texas. More agents raided his campaign office. Dissent is not allowed in any dictatorship, especially in one owned and run by George Soros. The Gestapo, excuse me, scratch that, the FBI refuses to say what they were looking for, but it was probably whatever they could find. The same Gestapo, oops, wait a minute, scratch that again, the same FBI that has no time to waste on shady deals between Hunter Biden, the big guy, and China, have plenty of time to go after enemies of the administration. Henry Cuellar has been in the U.S. House for going on 18 years as a Democrat, so it's possible he's mixed up in something illegal, but the timing of this smells to high heavens. Doesn't it just seem fishy that when Cuellar criticized Biden and Harris for their ineptitude on the borders crisis, he suddenly draws the attention of the FBI? Just a quote from Cuellar. I moved on from the vice president to say, okay, let's work with the ambassadors and let's work with the State Department. Let's work with the Homeland Security, unquote. Well, well. He also says, I think that's a way to address it, but I know that the media has put a lot of focus on the vice president, but with all due respect, she was given that title. I don't think she's, with all due respect, put the effort in there. We've got to look at other folks that have the expertise on that. Okay. So, the Monitor reports... The FBI conducted what it described as a court-authorized law enforcement activity at the Laredo home of U.S. Representative Henry Cuellar on Wednesday. Agents were also present at his downtown campaign office in Laredo, Texas, although FBI spokesperson Roseanne Hughes did not identify what the agency is investigating. She did issue a statement acknowledging the activity. The statement said, the FBI was present in the vicinity of Windridge Drive and Estate Drive in Laredo, conducting court-authorized law enforcement activity. The FBI cannot provide further comment on an ongoing investigation. At Cuellar's home, located in the 8200 block of Estate Drive, federal vehicles 
were seen with cases and other items taken from the house, congressman's house as over two dozen agents filed in and out of the residence Wednesday afternoon. Two agents with a clipboard and camera in hand-snapped photos of the trucks parked out front. The truck was again photographed and searched by agents using flashlights after the sunset. And nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see here. Hey, would you like to hear what the uh, chief scientist of the World Health Organization is saying now? It's uh, it's a, just a brief little snippet. Oh, I see. We're going to buffer. This is unfortunate because part of what she says is there's no evidence right now that healthy children or healthy adolescents need boosters. No evidence at all. Yeah. See, the problem is I have the uh, the video on Twitter, and Twitter is not going to want you to hear that today. Know what I'm saying, Holmes? They're not going to want you to hear that today. By the way, remember when uh, they said you got to take down the Civil War statues? And everybody said, well, they're just taking down the the slave owners, Civil War stuff, right? Theodore Roosevelt statue removed from the American Museum of Natural History yesterday. Too many people said he was a racist. I mean, he wasn't, of course. Frederick Douglass was a... Uh, an advisor to Teddy. But hey. But hey. That doesn't much matter, does it? That doesn't much matter in this day and age. Wait, what? Kyle Becker has a story about CNN's reaction to the CDC's bombshell report, a natural immunity that has left viewers feeling surprised and betrayed? Kyle, tell me, tell me you got some audio, some video that we can do the audio on. Wouldn't that be great? He says, after two years of COVID pandemic, the Centers for Disease Control shocked the world by finally admitting that natural immunity from prior infection does exist. But it's even worse than that for the mainstream COVID narrative. The CDC admits natural immunity from prior infection is superior to vaccinated immunity alone. Wow. But don't tell that to CNN's so-called news team, however, which mangled reporting on the CDC bombshell in a vain effort to keep the facts from its viewers. Let's see how they did it. Let's see. Welcome back. A new pandemic study just dropped, and it gives us an idea of just how much protection the COVID vaccine offers compared to infection. And CNN's Elizabeth Cohen is taking a look at this for us. So this is compiled by the CDC. All this data, Elizabeth, what does it show? You know, it's very interesting. It shows once again that vaccination is superior to prior infection. So let's take. So she's lying. Take a look at what these CDC folks did. They did this with researchers in California and New York. They looked at 1.1 million cases from May to November in those two states. What they found was the vaccination was more effective than prior infection at preventing hospitalization. And on a okay, enough of that. As Kyle Becker says, of course, CNN would do its utmost to conceal the actual news from as few remaining viewers as well as those who read the news source's website. The CDC report was absolutely clear. Vaccination was safest, but only 
if you didn't have a prior infection. Natural immunity was the most important indicator of positive health outcomes, whether vaccinated or unvaccinated. Once an individual had natural immunity, it substantially lowered risk of hospitalization and death, regardless of vaccination status. The CDC correctly pointed out that doesn't make it a wise strategy to seek out COVID infection. But CNN, CNN is intentionally obfuscating the facts in the CDC study in order to mislead its viewers into getting vaccinated regardless of the risks and benefits. Why am I not surprised? The Federalist has a great article out, Sean Davis, so it's okay to question election legitimacy now as long as you're not Trump. Well, I mean, Kamala Harris wouldn't wouldn't answer the question, would she? Now, here is uh, someone from the World Economic Forum, and this is just wonderful. At Davos a few years ago, you know, the Edelman survey showed us that the good news is the elite across the world trust each other more and more. So we can come together and design and do beautiful things together. The bad news is that in every single country they were polling, the majority of people trusted that elite less. So we can lead, but at They refer to themselves as the elite. Isn't that just precious? And they realize we don't trust them anymore. No. No, they can't lead. That's from the World Economic Forum's Great Narrative Conference. I don't know what her name is. I don't care. We don't trust them. Oh, Chuck Ross, Washer Free Beacon, has a new bombshell. Tony Podesta booked another $500,000 last quarter lobbying the White House on behalf of Huawei. Huawei, that is a communist Chinese tech firm. That really shouldn't be allowed, should it? I mean, that really shouldn't be allowed, should it? Um, Trump was on with uh, Hannity last night on, on Fox News. I thought you might be interested in this. Add no January 6th as we know it there would have been no problem whatsoever but they turned it down which tells you everything it was three days before I think how, how many how many times did you request it how many times specifically do you remember or recall requesting it and now the chairman of the committee has said nancy pelosi's off limits that means the sergeant of arms is off limits who would report to her uh muriel bowser's oh. not being uh, subpoenaed uh from my understanding they're none of their sean let him answer the question come on man Stop filibustering. Communications are being subpoenaed. Um, If the purpose of the committee is to prevent this from ever happening again, wouldn't those be the people that you need to ask? Because if you had 20,000 troops, I agree with you. I don't think this that day would have happened. And with a lot less than 20,000 troops also. The fact is, I knew it was going to be a massive rally because this was a protest rally against the election, which they considered to be totally rigged. They were right. And this was a protest against the election. And I was told by so many people, oh, we're going down on the 6th, we're going down. And I, that's why I met with the top people 
the top people in military and other places, and I said, I think this is going to be a lot of people coming down. I can tell you, I spoke... I believe it was the biggest crowd I've ever spoken to. It was massive. I'm not talking about the people that walked down to the Capitol. I'm talking about the people that we were watching. I felt that was going to happen at the rally or whatever you want to call it, at the people listening to the speeches for a lot of different people. And they were also making speeches the night before. And it was a lot of love there. Believe me, there was a lot of love and a lot of friendship and people that love our country. These are great people. And I felt there was going to be a very big crowd. And I said, you know, I think we should have 10,000. And Cash Patel is a terrific guy. I said, maybe it should be 20. I said, maybe it should be 20. He remembers me saying 10 to 20. But I wanted to have soldiers or, and I would have soldiers and or National Guard. And Nancy Pelosi turned it down. And if she didn't turn it down, you would not have had any problem. It would have just been absolutely a lovely day that's what's up that's what's up uh dr chris held on twitter saying anyone else lost trust in hospitals that follow incoherent government mandates because they don't want to lose government money yeah i think that's why hospitals are killing people sure do sure do That's exactly what I think is going on. But are you allowed to say it? Well, fortunately, as God closed the door of doing local talk radio in Little Rock, Arkansas, and opened the door for me doing this national live stream slash podcast, nobody can tell me, oh, we're going to fire you if you say this, that, or the other thing. Uh, Daily Signal has a new article out, James Comer. Americans deserve answers on Hunter Biden's Beijing-backed cobalt mine deal. says, instead of fixing runaway inflation, rising energy prices, and supply chain issues for the American people, the bare shelves Biden administration is attempting to persuade you Hunter Biden's business dealings are a thing of the past. It wants you to believe there's nothing in the president's son's suspicious international business dealings the American people should be concerned about. Don't be fooled. Hunter Biden has made a fortune capitalizing on his life as Joe Biden's son to peddle influence and line his pockets. For months, Republicans on the House Oversight and Reform Committee have been investigating and demanding answers into Hunter Biden's intent to sell his amateur artwork, possibly to influencers and adversaries such as China and Russia for exorbitant prices. The White House's decision to abide by purchasers' anonymity deserves scrutiny and remains a national security concern. Unfortunately, Hunter Biden's pattern of questionable business dealings is far too common and didn't start when his father became president. And there's a lot on that. There's a lot on that. Y'all, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate so much your, uh, your patience with me today. I just had a lot I had to get out. And there's, uh, there's plenty that, we weren't able to get to, but um, Monday is another day. I'm sure a lot will happen this weekend, and I appreciate you guys and appreciate your prayers for uh, my wife, who tested positive for COVID, uh, for me, who tested negative for it back on Monday, but kind of feel like I probably have it. You've been listening to the 72nd episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. 
Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempe of the 10th. And that's the way it is. Friday, January 21st, 2022.